Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today are my friends and corresponding authors of the paper, Obesity and Organ Transplantation, Successes, Failures, and Opportunities, published in the April 2014 issue of NCP. I'm pleased to introduce Sarah DiCecco and Nikki Francisco-Ziller, registered dietitians with the Liver Transplant Program at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So first of all, I'd like to start by asking Sarah and Nikki if they have any disclosures on this topic that they'd like to share. I do not have any disclosures. This is Sarah, and I do not have any disclosures either. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. I know that working in transplant for the last several decades, we've seen a shift in some of the nutrition issues that we've had to deal with. And I think especially in the last one to two decades, the issue of obesity and transplantation has become controversial, especially when we think about when obesity is considered a contraindication for transplant. So I'd like to kind of cover that issue and explore some of the topics you discuss in your article on NCP. So Nikki, I want to start and ask you, I know that both of you have been involved directly in the care of transplant patients for over two decades. Can you explain to our listening audience what you've seen as a transplant dietitian with regards to obesity? In other words, has obesity always been a controversial issue in transplant? And if not, when did you start to see a shift in that practice where obesity has become more prevalent in your patients and it's raised some concerns? Well, initially, earlier in the stages of transplant, our patients were more commonly just simply malnourished and often underweight. So our focus was very different in trying to help them eat better and even gain some weight if possible prior to transplant. And then as the general population started to gain weight, we saw the same trend in our transplant population. And those patients coming to us for transplant evaluation definitely were more obese. So it was more difficult with these patients to try to encourage them to lose weight but not to become more malnourished. So there's definitely been that shift in patients as they wait for transplant. So in the early days, the patients who were obese were not even considered for transplant. But as our knowledge and our experience with transplanting obese patients has grown and changed, our ability to successfully transplant these more overweight and obese patients has changed. So we now feel that obesity isn't necessarily an absolute contraindication to transplant but it's become more of a modifiable one that we can work on and try to improve upon as they wait for transplant. Nikki, why are transplant programs so concerned with obesity as a factor or a contraindication potentially for transplant? Well, I think there's two points there, and one is just the short-term potential for complications in that post-transplant period. So the surgeons and the transplant program is looking at things like the potential for wound complications, the potential for infection, how mobile can we get these patients to be right after transplant. And so they're concerned about those things holding up their success at transplant, the patient's success. In a longer-term way, though, we're very concerned about obesity as a representation of their overall health and what might come down the road for these patients. So, for example, long-term kidney transplant patients, patients that are out 10 or 15 years. It's been shown that one of their um, 
primary causes of mortality is actually from cardiovascular complications. So the concern is just how well we can control obesity so that we don't have somebody dying from cardiovascular disease down the road instead of renal graft function being the problem. So both short-term and long-term, we're really trying to control this issue of obesity. Sarah, I know in your research for this paper, you found that there are different guidelines for obesity depending on what type of organ is being transplanted. So if you saw any trends, what trends could you say that maybe you identified in your research? Well, and when Nikki and I reviewed our all of the literature regarding weight and in transplant patients, we, we did find that each type of organ transplant had its own criteria or common weight breakpoints, both at the low end of the BMI spectrum as well as the higher end of the BMI spectrum. And we, as many have found, it, this is challenging to interpret. Um, weights are reported at different times pre-transplant weights may or may not have been adjusted for fluid retention. Our BMI criteria have changed over the past decades as well. So, and as well as transplant centers have had different guidelines. So, as we've shown in our kind of a compilation, some of the general research results, it shows that being weight appropriate, meaning not being super thin or a low BMI, nor being obese, that there's a pretty narrow window of that weight appropriateness for both the lung and the pancreas transplant recipients. Heart transplant patients may have a little bit larger window, and then the probably broadest weight tolerance range for those undergoing liver and kidney transplantation. One of the things I really liked about your paper is you have some very helpful tables that kind of summarize and outline a lot of the studies that have evaluated weight status and the outcome of transplant patients. So I'm wondering, when you were doing that research, did you kind of notice any differences in the study methods or outcomes based on the era in which the studies were conducted? In other words, has there been a change in findings over the years, and what factors do you attribute those changes to? Because we know there's changes in medication protocols, shifts in our population as far as weight and criteria for transplant, surgical techniques, donor sources, et cetera. Well, we, we did notice that trends definitely have changed. In the very early papers on weight and transplantation, the BMI criteria or breakpoints that were used to group the patients um, was very different than what the current WHO criteria are that we all use now. As we tried to compile those different results, we did try to keep this relatively consistent in how we reported the data. I think the other thing that's different is in the early days, too, the numbers were small. And so I think that explains perhaps some of the differences we see now in much larger population-based studies looking at thousands of patients versus perhaps 50 or 100 that were reported back, you know, 15 years ago. So I think that's one trend we noticed. And then you know, now one of the other trends is that we also have more five and ten year patient and graft survival and more looking at really the true long term outcomes, not just a focus on short term outcomes. Can you get them through thirty days, sixty days to one year and what kind of complications occur during that point in time? But what really happens and comparing these obese patients to a normal weight patient at five years and ten years. And so I think we've seen trends and shifts in what's been reported from that standpoint as well. 
Sarah, in your research and also with your experience over the years, have you found that most transplant centers, I mean, you alluded to this, they tend to have weight criteria, the lower and the upper end. And in general, what kind of recommendations have you seen that exist among transplant programs today with regards to BMI and appropriateness for transplantation? Well, as I mentioned, I believe it's Table 7 in our paper is really a compilation of what the research of the evidence-based medicine shows and also reflects really what I think the current practice is at most centers regarding um, weight recommendations. But this really, I think, also needs to be applied in as much in a global setting, but also really actually still taking a look at it from the individual patient perspective. And um, we know that not all obesity is created equal, that there are comorbidities, how you manage them pre and post transplant, as well as how the patient manages themselves, the choices they make, how motivated they are, and to a certain extent, luck probably also plays a factor. So, you know, for example, we know that an obese recipient might be at a little bit greater risk for a wound infection or weight gain post-transplant or even recurrent non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in a liver transplant recipient. So now, based on, you know, what we've learned over these 20 or 30 years, I believe now we can be better able to prospectively manage them with how we approach their wound care, how we approach their weight gain prevention therapy by both the nutrition staff but also the other team members and catching weight gain in perhaps the, the 5 and 10 pound amounts as opposed to, you know, not knowing about it from a patient until they've gained 30 pounds. And so I think we could use this to, you know, as a general practice but also really still need to look at the individual patient. You mentioned prevention of weight gain, but I know you also work with a lot of patients who need to lose weight prior to transplant. What techniques have you found to be effective in helping your patients to be able to lose weight? Sarah and I have found that one of the most helpful things is the support of our interdisciplinary team. So when this obese patient comes for their evaluation, if they hear from their physician, their surgeon, their dietitian, and their nurse coordinator that this is an important factor that they need to work on, both pre- and post-transplant, it's much more effective than if they're just hearing that from one person. So having everybody be on that same page and everybody knowing that this patient is working on weight loss has been very helpful. Otherwise, the other things that are important is setting very specific goals for these patients. So, for example, a calorie goal, an exercise goal. As we know, fatigue is very prevalent for these patients, so the exercise goal may be something very simple, five-minute exercise sessions three times a day, for example, but to give them that goal and to set times for those things. Our patients also do much better if they are actually join a support group, whether it be online or they go to the actual meetings, and also if they record their calorie intake. And again, some prefer to do that on paper, some can use a smartphone or at a support group, but bringing back those food records and reviewing them with us is very helpful and it's a good learning process for our patients. Some patients are also given a pedometer to help kind of track their walking and their movements, but most of the time, very close follow-up and that support from the team are the things that are important to help this patient do what he or she can do to lose weight. What barriers have you found that exist in transplant patients specifically to, to kind of prevent them from losing weight either before or after transplant? And which of those barriers seem to be kind of unique to the transplant population? 
Well, I think um, pre-transplant barriers, one is often just breaking down with that group support how overwhelming the issue can be for some folks. If they have to lose 50 pounds to be able to be transplanted, it's breaking that down into pieces that they can achieve. And, you know, some of the, as in some of the examples that Nikki gave. And to really work with them in the face of the fatigue and the deconditioning and also the altered mental status. And we see this especially in our liver transplant candidates that with, you know, if they haven't stopped a lot, they can they remember to keep the food records and will they attend to a program? One of the, the good things pre-transplant is they're often, you know, reasonably motivated to lose weight because they have the lure of transplant as their goal. And so I think those are, you know, both barriers but also things that are kind of special in the pre-transplant phase. I think the other thing that we really work hard on is trying to focus on making sure that they maintain a decent protein intake so that we can prevent or minimize the development sarcopenia in this population, uh, which I think is a, maybe a little bit more of a specific barrier in a transplant candidate than someone trying to lose weight in the general population. Now, probably barriers exist more in post-transplant because the, the lure of transplant is passed. And we have found it becomes more of a challenge to have them keep the weight off or helping them continue to lose weight. Uh, we still have the same type of support from our multidisciplinary team on really encouraging them to continue to embrace those healthy habits, making sure that they get back on a good exercise program, keeping food records if they need to, um, resetting those goals, and overall really making sure that they continue to take personal responsibility. We try not to let them blame the medication, specifically the prednisone, with its reputation for stimulating appetites and weight gain. And so we do a lot of warning and, you know, trying to provide them with knowledge um, so that they have the power to control that and, and break through some of those barriers and be successful and be healthy after transplant. I know that your program has had some experience with bariatric surgery, even at the time of transplant. So what are some of the unique challenges of the bariatric surgery, either before or during or after transplant? And how, especially in those patients who are undergoing bariatric surgery at the same time of transplant, get adequate nutrition so that they can heal after their big surgery? Our center has used a number of different bariatric surgery options. Probably our biggest experience is doing bariatric surgery after transplant patients that have regained too much weight. A few kidney transplant patients, but probably more specifically some of our liver transplant patients, often in the setting of that really significant weight gain and the early recurrence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And at that point in time, they're not much different from a standard patient going through bariatric surgery. We tend to prefer to use the gastric sleeve procedure. That's a little less of an invasive surgery and as well it helps us avoid the issues about malabsorption of medications that you might find in a rear-wide gastric bypass surgery or a duodenal switch procedure. Prior to transplant, we're in kind of starting to embark on a program where some of our super obese kidney transplant patients do have a gastric sleeve surgery prior to transplant. 
our plan is to give them at least six months of um, weight loss, get them stabilized after the gastric sleeve procedure, lose enough weight for them to be able to go on to safely do a kidney transplant once they've lost enough weight. We're really in the very early stages of looking at whether or not that's going to be a, a good viable option for some of the very super obese kidney transplant patients. In our liver transplant patients, obviously some patients do have bariatric surgery very early in their course of liver disease as really to prevent them from developing a long-term chronic cirrhosis from their, from their obesity. On another tangent or arm of our bariatric treatment protocol, we've done about 12 cases of a gastric sleeve at the time of the liver transplant. And um, we're still in the early days of really determining how successful that is, but it seems to um, be working really quite well for, in a very specially selected population. The challenge there, as in, in any of these situations, is really to have them maintain their hydration and maintain their protein intake. I think those are really the key things that we kind of spend a lot of time working on them, sipping fluids all the time, making sure that they eat protein foods first, using other protein supplements and beverages and food choices and things like that to really make sure that they have that portion of their nutrition intake covered. Another big issue in the field of transplantation is just limited donors. So we know that there is a demand for transplant that exceeds the availability of our deceased donors. So more transplant programs are encouraging living donors. So have you seen any issues with regards to obesity in the living donors, and has that been an obstacle for patients who maybe want to donate a kidney or part of their liver? It's definitely an obstacle for anyone who wants to donate a portion of their liver because you don't want to donate a, a portion of the liver from someone who has a tendency or early stages of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because you don't want to give a critically ill patient a a, bad, a piece of bad liver, but also looking at the long-term health of the liver donor and making sure that they take good care of themselves going forward and maintain a healthy weight and really work to avoid the development of any kind of liver disease in their remaining liver portion. In addition, kidney donors, it is also as they go forward after donation that they're going to have one kidney, and we know that Obesity does have a detrimental effect on renal function, and so we do review with them and follow them after transplant, really encouraging good long-term healthy diet and lifestyle behaviors and maintaining their weight. I think one of the issues with this, not just with obesity, not just in the living donor population, but also we're going to see perhaps most primarily in the liver transplant status is that with the rising incidence of obesity and transplant, that there are going to be also many deceased donors who are obese. And so the deceased donor population is going to be compromised in this way. And so there'll be a limited number of donors available from that, po from that portion of the population as well. I know we've covered a lot of topics today, but I just want to open it up to see if there's any other issues or topics that you'd like to address with our listeners. Um, I guess I would just include that this is such an exciting area of research in transplant nutrition, and the area is exciting but challenging, and those challenges are 
due in part to many ongoing changes that occur within transplants, changes in immunosuppression regimens, changes in bacterial protocols, research that's going on with genetics, changes in surgical techniques. I mean, there's so many exciting things going on, and those things affect the nutritional care and results of our patients. Um, I think the other area that's probably really going to involve a lot of research is what Sarah was referring to with the pre- and post-bariatric surgery patients. There's a lot of potential for people to look at results of their own programs and how long-term results on these bariatric patients, like do they regain weight, and if they do, when does that occur? Just a lot of very exciting things going on, and I think what we know now is probably just the tip of the iceberg, and we have lots more to learn. Well, I thank both of you, Sarah and Nikki, for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. I invite our readers to find out more about this topic in the April 2014 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us today.